You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. Surgery, it's kind of a scary word, right? It brings up images of hospital stays, discomfort, and long recovery. In this episode of the Women's Health Cast, I talked to Dr. Ahmed Alniyami. He's a gynecologic cancer surgeon in the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN, and we talked about how he helps patients get ready for major surgeries and his five rules for faster recovery. I'm very happy to be talking to Dr. Ahmed Alniyami, who is a gynecologic oncologist in our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about what uh, the surgery as outcome is all about and uh, how to understand the outcomes, and I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But before we get into that, um, why did you want to be a doctor? Well, it, you know, when, when somebody is young and, and as a teenager, you look at idols around you, and then you kind of either worship them or avoid them. And one of the things that I, you know, I have been surrounded about is with physicians and surgeons around me, you know, my uncle is a doctor, and then I always see him talking about patients and how he helped them and how he cured them, or maybe how he helped them, you know, have a better life. And um, that's a noble service that I found touches a human being. But I felt as a physician, you get to touch a person in the very core of humanity. What brought you to gynecologic oncology? After medical school, I always wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, Game into surgery, um, started doing the general surgery training, finished it and did some trauma surgery and transplant, but I always had this eye on surgical oncology. Surgical oncology is a branch of, of surgery that deals with providing surgery to cancer patients, targeting the cancer itself. But I always had this passion about helping women and helping you know moms and sisters and daughters and in, in their in diseases that you know affects them because i always believe that a woman is not only a patient but she is a leader she's a mom she's a sister she's a daughter and any disease affecting her will not only affect herself but affects her family not that men when they get sick as not less important but i think women are our true leaders of their families and society. So I always wanted to treat women and treat cancer and stumbled into treating gynecologic oncology, women with cancer, and um, I found my calling there. So as a gynecologic oncologist and as a surgeon, what are some of the surgeries you most commonly perform? So gynecologic oncology, you know, basically it deals with cancer in women in their female productive organs. So ovaries, uterus, cervix, you know, and obviously the other uh, organs that are the female reproductive organs, excluding the breast. So the breast is not included. So naturally we deal with patients with ovary cancer, uterine cancer, cervix cancer, and obviously vaginal vulvar cancer basically a skin cancer around the area of a female uh, reproductive organs. So those are the surgeries that we perform and care for. That being said, um, we do see a lot of patients with 
pelvic masses and ovary masses, not all of them are cancer, some of them are cancer, but um, we deal with that also. One of the most common cancer we deal with is endometrial cancer or uterine cancer or cancer from the uterus. And that's by default the most common cancer in a female organs um, other than the breast. Uh, less likely to deal with an ovarian cancer and then now thankfully it's rare to deal with cervix cancer, vaginal and vulvar cancer, but the majority are uterine cancer and ovarian cancer. In addition to um, being part of our GYN oncology faculty, you're also a leader in improving surgical outcomes in our department and some sort of quality improvement initiatives. What draws you to that work? Because surgery is a very strong tool and applying it, knowing how to apply it is the first stage, knowing when to apply it is the second stage. And the third stage, as we have been told as residents, is learning when not to apply it. Let behold that I discovered that the last phase is knowing when not to apply it is, is a phase that will take you all your life as a surgeon. And the reason is, we don't want to apply the surgery when the outcome of the surgery or the side effect from surgery is worse than the disease itself or worse than the surgery itself. And that takes a lot of meticulous thoughts, knowledge, analysis, and counseling to patients. Not every step that we take should be taken if the side effect of that step is worse than the disease itself. And that led me to what we call surgical outcomes. You know, learning to do surgery, learning one, when to do it, and then you do the surgery and you emerge from the OR, talk with the family, and feel that you have done a lot of good things, which almost invariably all surgeons do. The trick becomes when the patient recovers from surgery and start dealing with side effects and outcomes that some of them were expected and some of them are less expected or unexpected. And it's rare that you end up with an outcome that is really not good and not expected. And it always, as a human being, when we do surgery, you always go back to the toughest case and the hardest case that you have done and the worst complication that you ended, you know, your patients ended up with and keeps haunting you. And that's where I started paying attention to not the only success of the surgery, but kind of where the question of where did we, where did we suboptimally help the patient? When did the patient had an uneventful surgery? And when did they end up with an event that could have been prevented? And that triggered my interest. And for the last 22 years, I've been researching and doing and, and looking at studies and, and performing studies and performing quality outcomes that looks at the outcome of the surgery, whether it's physical, mental, or functional, and measure what is the right thing to do and what are the bad outcomes that we can do. So you, okay, we've talked about less desired or sort of less right. expected outcomes. Right. What, are, what are some of those outcomes that... Um, right you see pop up commonly. Sure. So I think it, it's important for us to 
to translate what we talk about the desired and the undesired outcome and link it to what we normally talk about and what patients usually refer to as complications. And in a more philosophical, you know, approach is we have to understand what complications mean. Um, in a way, having a disease that requires surgery, having that disease is a complication to a, a personal life. You know, if I am working every day and I need a, I have a disease that needs surgical intervention, that by itself complicates my life. Um, I have to t be a day off, I have to do the, through the surgery, I have to recover, and that's, I'm out of work, and, and, and so on and so forth, and I might be in pain. So that by itself is a complication to my life. Um, but what I think people refer to complication as the complications from surgery, and that we, we all have to define and understand what exactly that means. Because it depends on your definition of the complication, then that will lead you to study it and know about it in a different way. For example, medically, after surgery pain is a complication. Patients don't expect that to be a complication because it's kind of like a taken side effect of from yeah, surgery. I would expect it's expected. a little bit of pain, yeah. It's expected. And so from the medical point, pain as an expected outcome, although ex accepted by the patients, is considered a bad outcome when it gets out of control. And so when a patient, for example, gets an infection at the surgery site, they consider it a bad thing while we see that as an undesired outcome, but it's not 0%. Every surgery has its own risk of getting some sort of a complication, as we call it, but it's really an undesired outcome. And that leads us to really discuss what is the complication and what does the complication mean and what are the complications or the desired outcome and the undesired outcome? And what are the less desired outcome? And those truly what, you know, what people call it as complication. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question is the most common complication or less desired outcome of surgery is, for example, pain. Pain is almost inevitable. You are cutting through skin, cutting through some tissues, you're stitching them. And so it's inevitable to have pain. So that pain is almost guaranteed. How much pain depends on what we expect it to be. If we expect the pain to be somewhere in the middle road and we have an excruciating pain after surgery, that's a complication. But if a patient expects zero pain, then any pain after surgery will be a complication. And that is you know, that's that's a philosophical approach to a complication to really mutually understand what does complication mean? What does the complication mean to the patient before they go surgery? What does the complication mean to the surgeon before they go surgery? And kind of reach a mutual agreement with the patient of what we are expecting and what we are not expecting. Other complications from surgery, which is you know, the less desired is an injury to an organ that is not meant to happen. 
Other complications of surgery, for example, if there is a bleeding, um, there will be some blood transfusion after surgery. There might be a clot formation, that's a blood clot in the veins and the arteries after surgery. Um, and those are all what we call a surgical complication. But there is a whole different dimension of other complications that the patient can have that has actually almost nothing to do with the surgery. So some sort of a complication from surgery can always and would always happen, but it all depends on how we define those complications. And that, I think, is, is very important for not only physicians and surgeons to understand, but actually a person who's going through surgery should open that kind of um, box with their surgeon and say, let's talk about outcomes. Yeah. So how do you approach that conversation when you're... Um helping patients get ready for a big surgery. How do you approach the conversation of, you know, this is an, an outcome that um, is maybe a little bit more likely for you and uh, kind of balancing, I guess, the cost-benefit? Right, right. And that is what's exactly, as you, as you said, that's the art of surgery. It's, and it's a hard thing to acquire in a day, in a year or two after being a surgeon. Actually, it takes years, if not even decades, to really mature and leave, uh, reach a level of maturity where you kind of like, as they people say, see it coming, you know. Um, I think it's very important for any surgeon. Uh, so, for example, if when I approach patients, I talk about the general outcomes of the surgery. We talk about what we are planning to do. You know, if I tell the patient you have a pelvic mass that can be cancer and this is how we're going to approach it, and this is the anesthesia, this is the surgery, this is the plan, if everything goes well, this is what we expect. The hospital stay a few days, some pain, some here and there. And then after that, when, when I feel that the patient have understood what's exactly going on, then after that I open the subject of let's talk about the side effect from anesthesia, side effects from surgery that can happen that that might affect your ability to function or or recover fast. And I go through all the anesthesia complication and surgical complication, but sometimes the list is too long and it's too overwhelming. So there is also an art of not overwhelming the patients with the possibilities, but at the same time, keeping them informed so that you are not hiding information from them. And, and some level of customization of complication always happens with patients. For example, a patient who have had pneumonias in the past and had a lung disease that exposed them to a higher risk of pneumonia, that patient, when we talk to her, we will talk more about after surgery pneumonias and lung issues than we talk about after surgery wound infection or surgical side infection, although that conversation also has to happen, but we emphasize more on the risk for the pneumonia and so on and so forth. A patient who always is, you know, have some weakness and some tiredness and some diabetes and so on and so forth, we talk all about those things because those in reality, is more likely to happen than anything else. It is more likely than a person with diabetes who will go through surgery, it is more likely that they will end up with a higher infection 
or higher blood sugar. So that's more common. So we talk about that. It is less common that they will say bleed and have blood transfusion and talk about the side effect of the blood transfusion. Those are remote. Those are less likely to happen. So we emphasize on those complications that might happen more likely. And that's where my line of research is talking about measuring complications and understanding who is the patient who is more likely to get that complication. You've talked about things you do um, based on what you've learned after surgery to help prevent complications. Are there things that you um, counsel patients to do before surgery to sort of minimize their risk for some complications or sort of prevent them even before surgery happens? I'm thinking things like, um, you know, exercise or diet changes or really anything that they could kind of change about their home lives that mean that when they leave the hospital, they're less likely to experience some unexpected or undesired outcomes? Yes. Well, that's a very, very good question. Excellent question. An excellent concept to, uh, to, for the patients to understand. So when we look at the complications, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about things that patients can help us mitigate the, the complication, as you alluded to. And then I'll give examples and draw some conclusions from them. Patients who smoke, they are at high risk of having pneumonias, having fever, having troubles breathing after surgery, maybe even heart attacks and so on and so forth. What about blood clots with smoking? Blood clots is not directly linked to the smoking, but the smoking is as a bad habit by itself means that the patient is more more likely to have other reasons for the patients to have a clot and so on and so forth. So when we do, what, what we tell patients is, in order for you to help yourself recover from surgery, you should stop smoking at least seven days before surgery. Well, it's always good to stop smoking anyway. But um, some of our patients, actually, when we tell them and we explain the complications of the smoking in, in terms of your recovery, they actually take the opportunity to quit smoking altogether. But I say, if that is impossible to do, at least you have to quit smoking. Give me more like a seven days before surgery than when you are smoke-free. Because the smoking with the carbon monoxide and all the nicotine paralyzes your immune system and makes your recovery really hard and and rough and the healing and the higher infections and the risks of pneumonia and so on and so forth. So one of the things that are the common things that we ask patients is to, if you're smoking, you quit smoking. Other factors, if you have diabetes, please let's control your diabetes better. Your blood sugar should be reasonable enough because you are coming for a surgery. Your, Your body will be stressed. Your body will have to have to heal from surgery. And so your blood sugar should be optimal, your, your not smoking, your blood pressure should be optimal, and so on and so forth. So that's one of the other things that we ask patients to, to take care of. Patients who uh, visit their physicians, you know, less than the normal, you know, if they have high blood pressure, diabetes, and this and that, all those patients, we send them back to their physician and say, hey, please check with your physician and let's control the blood pressure well. Let's look at all those medications. Let's, let's make sure your body is really optimal for surgery. So that's on the medical side. On the human side, we ask patients to 
you know, eat well. Um, if they have any issues with constipation or diarrhea, we need to fix that better. Um, if they are, you know, what we call nutritionally depleted, meaning their nutrition is not so good, we give them supplement, protein shakes and supplements to boost their nutrition because when they go to surgery, they need all that nutrition and protein to help them recover. When we look at infections, we ask patients to lower their bacteria on, on their skin. So what that means, we give them a, a special solution, chlorhexidine, which is you know kind of a soap, which is an antibacterial soap, um, in a way that kills the bacteria and the patient showers um, and the, in the morning of surgery. They shower with that special soap and they clean the surgery site with that special soap. Those are the things that we tell patients to do. But I think the most important thing that we would love to tell all our patients is, is to stay positive and exercise and eat well and think about the surgery as, as a, uh, an event that will happen without, with less complications. Because there is always this link between a positive mind and good attitude and a good recovery. Uh, you know, patients or a person who have a good attitude and a positive energy will definitely follow the instructions and quit smoking and get the blood sugar and be in a way positive that will help them to recover both in the hospital and after the hospital, after they leave the hospital. And those are the, some of the few things that we tell our patients to do and participate. Um, I think it's also important for us to ask the patient, what are the things that they think will hinder them from having a, a good recovery. Some patients would want, you know, um, a help in transportation because they cannot do this and that. And that, when we help them with those things, we are indirectly giving them more time and energy to focus on things that matter with their physical body, meaning controlling that blood sugar maybe quitting the smoking and maybe, you know, uh, taking that protein shake to have them recover. And that will ultimately lead to, um, to a better outcome. And this is why we do involve the patients to, to understand what are the things that we can help with. And everything adds up until we reach an optimal outcome. Yeah. Do you have advice for... Um caregivers, family members, or friends who are kind of going to be supporting someone through their post-surgical care, and how can how can they get ready, and what are things they can do to make sure that um, the recovery goes really smoothly, and what are things that they should be keeping an eye out for if, like, I'm taking care of my mother after a surgery? Is there something that, um, like, a, a complication that might happen at home that I could kind of be watching for right. to make right. sure... Right. I think, it, you know, I, I think you brought up a very, very important subject is to involve the patient's family or the caregivers in both the before the surgery and after the surgery to let them understand that their loved one will have to have some changes happening to them. Um, would love to involve the caregiver and the family before the surgery with the counseling phase. I think it's very important for a family member or a caregiver to really understand what their mother or loved one are going through. This is a big surgery, or a small surgery for that matter, whatever it is. But I always say there is no surgery, there is no small surgery. There, surgery is surgery, whether it's small or, or big. 
They have to understand that their loved ones going through surgery, going through anesthesia, going through some changes that will make them uh, in pain, make them less functional, maybe make them need some assistance, whether it's getting off the bed and moving around and maybe, you know, prepare some meals and do the shopping, maybe do the laundry and maybe do chores at homes that, you know, that needs to be done. Um, and that is very important because that positive help will not only help the patients from the physical point of view, but actually also mentally that they are all surrounded with somebody. So that's very important to have them really be involved right away from the beginning to what they expect their mother to be. And that's what the role of the surgical team to explain not only to the patients, to be patient with themselves, that they will not be as strong as, as they are right now, uh, but to really help the family members and the caregivers understand what how the recovery will be. And more importantly, to give them a list of things to watch. Their mother should not have a fever, or their patient, their loved one after surgery should not have a fever. The presence of fever is a very serious thing, and fever is defined as this and that, and if you take a temperature and then the patient, you know, your loved one has a fever, you know, this is the phone number you have to call, and this is the you know, this is the person that you have to contact. Maybe you should just come to the emergency room right away or come back to the hospital or, come, or call the physician at daytime to investigate and understand. So some exhaustive uh, instructions will be given to the patient and their family members. Look for fever, look for pain, look for headache, look for nausea, vomiting. Anything, any, anything that is unusual or unexpected should be alerted to. And that's where we tell the patients and their family what to expect of their surgery and after surgery. And we tell them anything outside that expectation is unusual and you need to call us. Because it's hard to tell the patients, call us when there are five things happen. One, two, three, four, five. Because if something that you have not mentioned, that they would never think to call you. So we actually tell them, this is what you expect. You're expecting not to have fever. You're expecting to eat, drink, you know, have bowel movements, have urinate without troubles, don't have headache, you know. Yes, you will be tired. Yes, you will lose your appetite, so on and so forth. But any, anything outside that parameters, you should be alerted to and you should look for that, you know. When we say you should be eating and drinking, you shouldn't have a, a perfect appetite, but you should be eating and drinking enough. If you're not eating and drinking and you're vomiting, you're, you're nauseous and you have them vomiting, that's a problem that you need to report. So, and that instructions and, and, and education will, will happen a lot after surgery when the patient is really ready to go home. Because one of the things that we discovered is that you cannot talk about all the complication, all of them at the right at the beginning before the surgery. Because A, the patient will be so scared. B, some of the information will be lost. And you think that they understand it, but because they were overwhelmed, they wouldn't be able to, um, to retain that information. So... Constant reminder of all the outcomes, constant reminder of all the things to expect and not to expect, um, especially at the day of the discharge from the hospital, 
uh, needs to be emphasized. And um, we always love when the family members are involved. Um, we always ask if who's going to take care of the patient after surgery because we need to talk to them directly. Sometimes the patient in the surgery uh, in, in the hospital are sleepy and don't remember the details and we need those loved ones and the family to be the reminder and you know to remember things and and uh, and so on and so forth so i think that's that's very important because recovery doesn't only happen in the hospital but happens really after the hospital and at home when they are recovering and that's where the bulk of the recovery and to be honest with you that's some of the bulk of the complication that actually happens as what we call delayed complication that happens at home and that's where it's important for us not to only ignore that but really emphasize on that yeah i wanted yeah. to ask about that where where mm. complications are most commonly mm. noticed if they're mm. mostly happening in the hospital or if they're mostly delayed and things that pop up at right. home so it sounds like yeah, well, it's hard to, to really quantify because every surgery has its own set of complications or outcomes. Some of them are early, and as early as in two, three hours after surgery or two, three days after surgery. And some of the complications happen, you know, five days, seven days, 10 days, 30 days after surgery. Um, every, comp every surgery has its own distribution of those complications. Some of the biggest surgeries that we do, you know, say an ovarian cancer spread, and we call it what we do as a debulking surgery, we remove all the cancer, it's a big surgery. You know, I would say the, the bulk of the complication happens in the first seven days. And this is why the patients are staying in the hospital for a good five or seven days until they are relatively pain controlled. They walk, they, you know, they eat, they drink, they have their body working in a, in a decent way and that takes almost 60-70% of the complications and when they go home the story is not over yet. They have to look for constipation, they have to look for a bladder infection, they have to look for delayed infections, pneumonias, heart attacks and so on and so forth. So those are the complications that can happen after. So if I would if I would look at all the complication, the bulk of the complication really happens immediately after surgery, maybe up to five or seven days. And that's where, that's where we actually keep the patient in the hospital to keep watching them. So what are your um, key recommendations for patients? I think you covered them a little, but I'd love to restate them again. Um, like three or five things that, that you really recommend to patients to help them get better faster afterwards, to help them be ready for their post-surgical outcomes and um, recover more quickly? I think, so, you know, if you ask me about, you know, four or five, you know, points for each patient to understand to help them recover and minimize their unevent, um, the less likely, the less desired complications, the less desired outcomes are, um, I think number one advice for all my patients, including even myself as a, as a human and as a patient, um, is to really understand what the surgery means, what the surgeon is doing, and try to ask as many questions as you can to satisfy your understanding of it. Don't say, well, the surgeon told me that they will cut me open and do this and do that, and I don't understand what they are doing, but they are doing their job. Try to ask questions. Try to understand it. And when you ask questions, you will almost inevitably ask about complications. 
And so because knowledge is power, the more you know about what will happen, the less likely that you will be surprised and the less likely that you will be frustrated. And actually, the more likely that you'll be able to deal with those quote-unquote complications and, and recover from them. So number one, ask all the questions. Number two, try to be as healthy as you can. Obviously, we all try to be as healthy on a daily basis, but especially if you are going for a surgery in the near future, in the coming few days or a week or two, ask your surgeon or your team or your healthcare team or your primary care physician for that matter, ask them, what are the things that I can do to help to make me you know, recover faster? If I have diabetes, what should I do? If I have high blood pressure, what should I do? If I have medical issues that might impede or, or delay my recovery, what can I do to, to have those managed under control? So point two is, to summarize point two, is actively manage your other medical problems and let the surgery deal with the surgery itself. Don't expect the surgeon or the surgery team to take care of all the medical issues that you have. They will, but it helps if you as a person kind of take in charge of all the medical issues that you already have. So before surgery, get ready, get your all the medical issues under control. Number three, eat healthy and don't smoke. That's, those are, you know, as, as, as cliche as it sounds, it's really important. Patients who smoke, patients who don't eat healthy, they don't recover fast, they don't do very well, and that's what they end up having troubles. Number four, do expect some level of complications or undesired side effect that might happen. Don't be surprised, understand it, ask questions, and follow through with your surgeon or, or, or surgery team to help them manage that kind of complication. Because if you go to surgery understanding that there will be zero complication, then you are setting yourself into a level of frustration when anything will happen, which is truly a complication, uh, then that you're setting yourself to a misunderstanding. And number, number five, I think, um, you know, look at the big picture and understand what the ultimate outcome is from the surgery three, four months down the road, what am I looking at and understand what the end result is. And that will help you put things into perspective, not only the surgery, the recovery, the complications, but the whole ultimate outcome is. Because if a surgeon understands that this surgery is a first surgery of series of many surgeries, and you are surprised two, three months later that there will be three or four more surgeries to reach the goal, then that will be uh, really hard on you, um, and so on and so forth. So I think it's really understanding the whole concept is 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 keeping a you know um, keeping an eye on the big picture is really important. Those are my five points. Yeah. So what else do you wish patients knew more about um, post-surgical care and their recovery? I wish patients understand that a certain level of undesired side effect or what they call complication is almost inevitable. And the surgeon, the surgery team, the anesthesiologist, the nurses, the you know, all the doctors who are taking care of them, their whole effort 
is really to minimize those complications and truly not to make them zero, but work with the patients to prevent or try to minimize those complications and never truly make them zero. Um, so I wish patients will understand that there are some sort of level of complication and I wish they can ask about the complication of surgery more than what I see. So I do, I do wish uh, patients to, um, to ask me more about the complications and the outcome, but I think if you keep in your mind that there will be some sort of side effect of all of this, then it's important for you to ask those questions and it doesn't have to be immediate. Maybe you can go home, write them down on a piece of paper, call your surgeon and ask the surgeon, can I take maybe five, 10 minutes to talk about this that I have read or this that I have thought about things and, and gather more information about the side effect and the undesired outcomes because the more you know, the less you will be surprised and the faster that you recover from. So that's the only wish that I, you know, that I wish that my patients will, will pay attention to. And maybe, maybe also, you know, what I wish my patients to, you know, ask me and ask all their surgeons about what are the measures that you and the hospital is taking to prevent those big complications? You know, what's your infection rate? What's the clot rate in, in the hospital? You know, how many patients leave the hospital without any problems? Um, get to push the surgeon and their team to be to expose to the patients their numbers and their their complications and uh, because everybody has their own complication it's just a matter of you understanding what you know what the surgeon or his team or her team are doing to minimize that thank you so much for sitting down with us you are most welcome thank you so much and i'm honored on the next women's health cast we're looking at the emerging crisis in rural women's health About one-third of counties in Wisconsin don't have a practicing obstetrician-gynecologist. Nationwide, that number is closer to one-half of all counties. This means longer travel times for prenatal care or delivery for pregnant patients. It also means basic, everyday OBGYN services like contraceptive care or cancer screenings are much harder to access. I talked to Dr. Ellen Hartenbach from the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN to learn about the scale of this problem in Wisconsin and beyond, and what our department is doing to help. We will also meet Dr. Laura McDowell, the first person in the country to specifically train to be an obstetrician-gynecologist in rural practice. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.